From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll look at the proposals for redesigning 794 and how it could reshape downtown Milwaukee. Then we'll learn about efforts to monitor and improve air quality for children in Milwaukee. If we can see that these small air cleaners actually change the levels of indoor air quality, we need to be at a state level having a discussion about providing those air cleaners to all of the child care centers. Plus, in one of the country's most segregated cities, we'll hear from residents in one of the city's most diverse neighborhoods. When you have a neighborhood that is diverse, I think it allows for people to truly get to know people who might not come from the same background. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. 794 is likely to see some major changes in the next few years. The Wisconsin Department of Transportation released several different proposals for what these changes could look like. And even though construction is years away, these plans are already being hotly debated. Mark Gottlieb is the Associate Director for the Institute for Physical Infrastructure and Transportation at UW-Milwaukee. He joins me now to talk about these proposals and what they could mean for downtown Milwaukee. Mark, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. Thanks for having me. As we're looking at 794, what is the space in town that we're talking about here? Well, we're talking about that segment of freeway that sort of separates the east side of downtown from the third ward. There is an elevated freeway that runs from I-794 that runs from the Marquette Interchange, east to the Lake Interchange near Lake Michigan, and then turns south, connecting into the Hone Bridge and then proceeding farther down into Bayview. So why are we seeing this move to redesign 794 right now? Well, this segment of the freeway has not really been touched in any significant way since the 1970s. And it's an elevated freeway. You know, I, I think it's safe to say elevated freeways in urban areas are becoming somewhat less popular than they were maybe back in the day when they were constructed. So the DOT is looking at this highway. It's it's over 50 years old. It certainly needs some kind of rehabilitation. It either needs to be fixed the way it is or it needs to be revamped some way or rather just to bring it up to modern standards and to and to fix it up because it is uh, reaching the end of its useful life. So there are folks that are concerned about the built environment down there and how those areas relate to each other who have proposed to say, well, if you're gonna if you're gonna have to do something here, perhaps you should look at either making some changes to the freeway or else actually the most radical suggestion, take the freeway down to grade, make it into a regular arterial boulevard and create a greater degree of connectivity between, you know, the third ward and the east side of downtown. As you say, uh, something needs to be done. This isn't a project of of want, but really need. Now, what we do to redesign this space, that is really what's up for debate. As you say, there are people who uh, take issue with having these kinds of elevated highways in general in downtown areas. What, what are some of the issues that people have with this current design? Well, I think some folks feel that the elevated freeway 
is a visual impairment to continuity and connectivity of the neighborhoods. I think they feel like the area underneath the freeway is potentially underutilized or could be put to better use. Uh, if you did bring the freeway down or redesign it, you could also open up a considerable amount of area to potential residential or commercial redevelopment. So I think it's a it's a question of land use. It's a question of connectivity, but it's also a question of, you know, safe and efficient movement of people and goods. That's where the trade-off really is here between making some improvement to the existing freeway or taking it down to grade. The current freeway carries about over 70,000 vehicles per day east of the Milwaukee River. So some of those are traffic coming to and from downtown. Some of it is traffic traveling back and forth across the Hone Bridge from down farther to the south. So if you take the freeway down to grade, what happens to those 70-some thousand vehicles every day? To give you an example of how much traffic that is, I mean, I think most people have probably traveled on some of the more heavily traveled arterial streets in the Milwaukee area. For example, if you take a road like Mayfair Road, Highway 100 out in Wauwatosa, between like Watertown Plank, North Avenue, a really busy arterial street, that's got less than 40,000 vehicles per day on it. And so we're talking here about something where you would have 70 plus thousand vehicles that would have to be relocated in some way to Clyburn Street, to St. Paul Avenue, to other streets that would remain after you took the freeway down. And, you know, I think some of the models that the DOT has put together showed increases in traffic on some of those streets of three or 400% under some of the freeway removal concepts. So I think the idea of taking it down, I think it's easy to understand why people would like to do that. But I think doing it in a way that still maintains safe and efficient mobility, I think that's where the challenge is going to lie for the DOT if they were to select an option like that. Sure. Now, there are multiple options that are being mulled over, but just to look at this idea of bringing it down to grade first, uh, as you say, we would probably have to divert it to other streets as well. It, it, it seems unlikely that we'd want what seems to essentially just constitute a, another highway at grade level. What would that mean for this kind of project? Would we be talking about uh, not just redesigning that street, bringing things down to, to grade level, but also redesigning other surrounding streets to ensure that traffic is being diverted? Right. I should say first that the DOT is following a process here that they always follow. It's a federally required process that's followed on all these major complex projects. And it's important to say you don't want to prejudge the outcome. But the, the department right now is currently looking at two freeway removal concepts. Both of them, I believe, involve converting the street immediately to the north of I-794 is Clyburn. The street immediately to the south of I-794 in parallel is is St. Paul Avenue. I think both of these alternate concepts that they're looking at would involve making Clyburn Street uh, into a boulevard and also improving St. Paul Avenue. So the area then between those two streets, you would still have all the cross streets that you have now on the east side that connect Clyburn and St. Paul and connect the third ward and downtown. But you would have a, a stretch of land that would be potentially available for redevelopment. But yes, both of these options would talk about new and improved surface streets that would have to be enhanced to accommodate this traffic. And again, I think both concepts show Clyburn Street as a boulevard. The other thing that important to mention is both of the concepts of freeway removal 
they begin west of the Milwaukee River. So the Milwaukee River runs north and south. It runs, you know, right along here west of Water Street. And each of these options would involve then the same crossings of that exist now with a bridge of Clyburn Street and a bridge of St. Paul Avenue. And, you know, one of the things you need to be thinking about here is how do you accommodate the river traffic, bridge openings and and things of that nature if you have much more traffic on those streets. Anyone who works in downtown Milwaukee or who spends any considerable amount of time there will will know that accommodating the river traffic is something you have to uh, contend with every summer, especially spring, fall, anytime there's uh, movement on the river. Let's put that to the side. Let's say we stay with something that is still an elevated freeway system. They're still going to redesign it. What would that look like? There are six different concepts of what they're referring to as freeway improvement. Bringing the freeway down to grade creates development opportunities. Many of the freeway improvement concepts also would do the same thing. In other words, they would open up land for development, particularly some land down near the lake interchange by potentially bringing the east and westbound lanes of the interstate closer together, changing some ramps, changing how the freeway interacts with Lincoln Memorial Drive at the lake interchange there. Each of those, I believe all six of the freeway improvement concepts that the department is looking at to some degree would also, I'll say, reduce the footprint, reduce the visual impact, and potentially open up some areas for redevelopment. So I think even in a, we'll call it a hybrid approach, where you keep an elevated freeway, but you make some changes to its design, there would still be some of these some of these things that I think people are looking for. So all those things are components here that could possibly be mitigating factors to say that if you keep an elevated freeway, it's not going to look like it looks now and it's not going to function like it functions now. Sure. Now, we're we're really just in the beginning stages of this uh, planning. I'm not even sure we can quite call it planning yet. Uh, what does this timeline look like? The department, they had some uh, what they referred to as public involvement meetings, not public hearings, but opportunities for the public to come in and look at the project and get a feel for what's really being talked about here. Those were held in August. I think the department now is in the process of somewhat digesting uh, some of that information. Their plan, I believe, is that by the third quarter of 2024, they would be coming forward with a preferred alternative, which they would then have to take that to Federal Highway Administration to get approval for because this is a federally aided project. They would need something from the federal government that's referred to as a record of decision that would be supportive of their preferred alternative. As you say, it's it's still early in the process and still certainly a lot of opportunity for people to weigh in on what they think and also to learn more about the project and what's going on. If you go to the DOT, Wisconsin DOT website, they do have a, a fairly comprehensive website on this project that you can find that shows the different concepts, talks about them, explores the process of how this is all going to move forward. Like I say, right now they are in the phase that's referred to as alternative development and analysis. So they're sifting and winnowing some of the alternatives, which then will lead into 
an environmental analysis process that it will be either an environmental assessment or environmental impact statement that will lead into a preferred alternative sometime probably uh, next summer or next fall and construction. I think they're referring to construction starting no earlier than 2026 on whatever whatever design that they would select. All right. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. Well, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Mark Gottlieb is the Associate Director for the Institute for Physical Infrastructure and Transportation at UW-Milwaukee. A new project is tackling the problem of indoor air quality to improve asthma outcomes for children. Asthma is the most common chronic disease in kids and a leading cause for emergency department visits and school absences. Researchers have installed monitors at 50 child care centers throughout Milwaukee. They're collecting data on the pollutants that show up inside classrooms. Then, halfway through the project, they'll install air cleaning devices in those same classrooms. WUWM's Lena Tran observed one of the monitor installations at Nextdoor Milwaukee, a child care center in Metcalf Park. She spoke with Aaron Lee a board member of the asthma nonprofit Fight Asthma Milwaukee Allies, also known as FAM Allies. It's almost lunchtime for the four-year-olds in Miss Nicole Foster's class. They're so excited for the midday break, they hardly pay us any attention when we walk in. Erin Lee is a board member with FAM Allies. She pulls out the air quality monitor. It looks like a digital alarm clock, a slim white box with a number on the display. She works with the teacher to find a place to mount it on the wall, out of reach for tiny, curious fingers. So we're going to leave this guy plugged in for about two weeks before we start recruiting parents of kids that are cared for in this room. Okay. And then the parents that enroll will start answering weekly questions about their kids' respiratory symptoms. Okay. So we'll be collecting data about the air quality and we'll be collecting responses about their kids' respiratory symptoms. Okay. And we're going to see if there is a correlation. Okay. About two months from today, we're going to come back with an air cleaning machine. That machine has two filters in it. So if you have a vacuum cleaner with one of those filters that you take out and wash under the sink, one of the filters is like that. Okay. The other filter is a charcoal filter. These became very popular during COVID because charcoal filters will filter uh, virus-sized particles. So we'll be able to see what happens before we put the air cleaner machine in and what happens after we put the machine in. And the parents will keep answering questions about the respiratory symptoms. We think we'll see air quality get a little bit better, right? Very interested to see if the kids have fewer respiratory symptoms. Lee pulls out her phone. She has this app that's collecting data from all the daycare monitors. The numbers start streaming in for the one she just installed. It's in the green, meaning the air quality is good. In the coming months, the researchers will survey parents about their kids' respiratory symptoms, things like whether their child is coughing or has a cold or flu. They'll track how those symptoms change over time, especially as the air gets cleaner. After the installation, I sit down with Lee to learn more about the project. And then in terms of where those centers are, how did you decide where to focus geographically? So our focus was city of Milwaukee. And we have 
pretty much an equal representation of both north side and south side facilities. We have about equal representation with Spanish language representations. So of the south side facilities, all of them provide service in Spanish. Our questions and our materials are translated for both families and childcare providers that would be more comfortable speaking Spanish. And I mean, it was just, I think, two weeks ago, last week, where we had wildfire smoke descend upon our city. And, you know, people were being told to stay inside, windows, doors closed, AC on. But it's not necessarily the case that the air inside is as safe we are learning outside. Can you talk about that and what factors determine indoor air quality just more generally? Yes. So that week was the first week I did installations of these monitors. So I was installing monitors in both uh, large centers and family-sized centers, and all of them, as I was putting the monitors into the rooms, were um, registering red or yellow air quality levels. So we want to be in green, yellow is sort of in between, and red is what you want to avoid. Most of the childcare centers have air conditioning turned on. Most of them have their windows closed. But every time somebody comes in the door, you're bringing, and in the case of wildfires, you're bringing particulate matter into that environment. And it just, it spreads throughout the environment and can be registered on the monitors. Particulate matter, PM, we're looking at size 2.5 micrometers. And that's the size that can get deep into the lungs. There are smaller particles that get even through the, the lungs into the bloodstream. But we're looking at size 2.5 micrometers. You find them mostly from things that burn, so the wildfires. But gas stoves are another um, source. If you are burning anything like candles or incense inside of a building, there are small particulates that come from that burning. The other things that the monitors are measuring are VOCs and carbon dioxide. So VOCs are volatile organic compounds, and those tend to be gases associated with things that are smelly. So cleaning products, personal care products like perfumes or hairsprays, that kind of thing, lotions, off-gassing from newer carpets or particle board furniture, that furniture that you put together from big box stores. So the volatile organic compounds are really hard to figure out what the exact source of them are. And with the child care centers, we tend to focus a little bit more on cleaning measures because that's one of the easiest things to try to focus on to reduce VOCs is, is how can you use cleaners that have fewer chemicals in them to maintain a safe and healthy environment. The carbon dioxide levels are really related to how many people are in a building um, the more people are exhaling carbon dioxide in a room, the higher those carbon dioxide levels get. And um, when you have higher carbon dioxide levels, um, it's a red flag for your ventilation system. So is the ventilation system older? Does it need to be updated? Is it not working? Do we need to be turning on fans when cooking and using bathrooms to just get the air um, moving and circulating so that we're flushing with outdoor air, which has higher oxygen levels than indoor air. I guess in terms of the building, is it a matter of like, here we're talking about daycares, but like housing stock, older, you know, newer, ventilation, I guess what are the factors with the actual facility? Yeah, so we do tend to see 
all of the levels are higher in older housing stock or building stock, especially if there hasn't been an extensive remodel. Because you have, well, for asthma, you have all kinds of asthma triggers in these older housing stock buildings. You have potentially older ventilation systems that aren't turning over the air with as much frequency as you need to flush the, the building of those different items that you'd be looking for. But you also see sometimes higher levels in brand new buildings. Brand new buildings especially tend to be hermetically sealed. So we're kind of sealing in all of those different asthma triggers and air quality issues, and they don't have as much of a chance to turn over unless you have a really state-of-the-art HVAC system, ventilation system in the building. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a, a mixed bag of what we're finding. I mean, as someone who's been involved with like public health research in this space, do you feel like it's been overlooked for a really long time and now it's kind of getting more attention because people are like, oh, air quality is important post-2020. So it's not a new problem. And really, there's been a lot of research on outdoor air quality uh, going back many decades. And the understanding of how outdoor air quality issues can affect respiratory health is, is a longstanding known fact. I think the challenge with measuring indoor air quality has been in the equipment. Just recently, in the last five, maybe as long as 10 years, there have been more consumer-grade air quality monitors, meaning that monitors you might use to do a study, which be a little bit better grade than a consumer grade, are, you know, they're easy to find, they're at a lower price point, so that you can buy enough of them to do a study with 50 different centers. Earlier, you talked about potentially advocating for installing these air cleaners like at a state level. What other kind of policy solutions would you be interested in as an organization? We have been working for 25 years in the, in the community with child care centers, really advocating for, at the base level, education. So let's educate parents, let's educate the child care providers. Everybody that is caring for even one child with asthma needs to know what it is, what it looks like, and what environmental things in the building can trigger asthma attacks. So we've progressed a little bit, and, and now we're looking at indoor air quality almost separate from a lot of those other asthma triggers, and it's, it's the same advocacy. Let's, everybody needs to know what those air quality things are, how they affect the kids in the child care centers. I would love to see policies around education specific to asthma and air quality and you know what can we ask centers to pay attention to from from a state level i'm not sure that we can mandate monitoring indoor air quality because you were alluding to earlier all the buildings are so different there are certainly thresholds that we would want to aim for but i'm not even sure that Setting standards for childcare when you're looking at so many different types of buildings is feasible. Maybe with additional studies, we can, we can come to that conclusion. But if we can see that these small air cleaners actually change the levels of indoor air quality, and if they actually, using those cleaners means that kids' respiratory symptoms are decreasing, we need to be at a state level having a discussion about providing those air cleaners to all of the child care centers 
there is a maintenance cost with changing the filters, but if we can find some funding and the means to provide the cleaners to the childcare centers, I think that would be worthwhile. Erin Lee is a board member of FAM Allies. She spoke with WUWM's Lena Tran. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. In about 15 minutes, we'll hear how Milwaukeeans are celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month. But first, we'll explore one of the city's most racially diverse neighborhoods and talk to the people who live there. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is WUWM's Mayan Silver. This is my parents and by proxy my dog Hops. He's a Shetland sheepdog. And one of my absolute favorite sounds is him drinking water out of his water bowl. When he does, he has a particular pattern like a waltz. It's a Shostakovich masterpiece of sorts. So when I hear Hops drink, I envision big ballrooms, sweeping gowns, and people twirling for days. It's a daily reminder to be a little fancy and stay hydrated. Send us your favorite sounds along with why you love them. The instructions are at wuwm.com Our goal is to air them on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Milwaukee is known as one of the most racially segregated cities in the country. That is unfortunately true, as segregation persists in many neighborhoods. But there are pockets on the southwest and northwest sides where that's not the case. In these areas, two neighbors picked at random are more likely to be of different races. A research fellow at Marquette Law School, John Johnson, has identified some of these neighborhoods through his research that inspired several WUWM reporters to visit Martin Drive on Milwaukee's west side and speak with residents. They found it's not just a diverse neighborhood. It's also a place with a strong sense of community. WUWM's Mayan Silver asked residents and former residents about the area. WUWM's Eddie Morales and former Vaughn fellow Kobe Brown also contributed. WUWM caught up with Milwaukee jazz singer Adekola outside her house in Martin Drive during a community-wide rummage sale. It's a working-class community. We've inherited our properties from the workers in the breweries and the upper management is down on McKinley Drive, those um, brick homes and fireplace homes. But most of the community here is working and we have very intentionally, through our very strong Martin Drive Neighborhood Association, uh, made this a very diverse neighborhood. 
I feel very safe walking at night. I'm 75. I live alone, but I am really, I, I have no qualms other than the regular stuff that's going on. But it's in our neighborhood, we're pretty safe. Martin Drive is nestled between Washington Park on the north. There used to be a zoo there in the old days. And Miller Valley on the south. It's bookended by 35th Street and Highway 41 on the east and west. So what else has made Adecola stay? She bought a home. Like many others who say that the housing market there is affordable. Again, that's all intentional work by the community organization to keep the homes in a reasonable, uh, market, marketable way. And we go around and make sure that we are keeping the areas up. And if we see someone's maybe having a rough time, we'll go to the neighborhood association and find somebody that'll come and cut their grass or help them paint their steps. We are a very active community, but like I said, it's intentional. There's Martin Drive West, which is closer to Wauwatosa and has more single-family homes and duplexes. Then there's Martin Drive East, which has more renters. This varied housing and the fact that it's relatively affordable has allowed diverse groups to move in. That's according to Arijit Sen, a UWM professor who's been bringing students to engage in Martin Drive for a decade. Housing stock is extremely important for diversity um, because it's not just a diversity, it's not just a racial issue. It's, it's not just racial diversity, there's gender diversity, there's age diversity, there are intergenerational issues happening. And um, Economic? Yeah, economic diversity, yes. Um, and that, when you do not have appropriate housing, which fits different economic groups, then you tend to have problems. Martin Drive is 40% black, 31% white, 11% Asian, and 10% Latino. Sen says that this diversity is created in part by the stock of housing, a mix of low income and more moderate housing. The ability to choose to live in a place which has resources, which has transportation, and which has urban guardians. I would say all these together in this particular case work very well. What you heard there was Sen talking about urban guardians, not urban gardens. Urban guardians are people that step up and choose to do things for the community. The neighborhood association that Adecola mentioned earlier, it's full of Martin Drive residents who are stepping up. It's consistently mentioned by Martin Drive residents as a main factor in improving the community. Pat Miller knows all about it. She has been described as a main urban guardian. Sen also described her as the neighborhood's energizer bunny. At a community picnic, I asked her what makes the neighborhood special and has allowed it to thrive. I think it's things that we have done like this. It's the constant communication. So through the first group that we had, we got $1,000 a year for things, and we wanted to have a newsletter. So we did newsletters, um, I think quarterly, and we did monthly meetings. They were in the basement of Maggie's house. You may or may not have met her yet. And so everybody got to know each other, and we had very dedicated, um, they were called uh, block reps or block council. And so their names were published in the newsletter. So you knew if you lived on 46th Street, you would see if you were new, I could go to whomever and their phone number was there and you could ask a question. And so we just kept building on this connection. In addition to the rummage sales and community picnics, the neighborhood has a Halloween extravaganza and other events. Pat Miller lights up when she talks about the latest art project. 44 art boxes that neighbors have made that are placed around the neighborhood. Some other things that are helping the community 
Well, there are corporations in proximity, like Harley-Davidson and Miller Coors. There's also the Near West Side Partners, a business improvement district. All these entities have a stake in the community, says Daria Miller, who's of no relation to Pat Miller. She's lived in Martin Drive for nearly 10 years. We caught Daria Miller standing in front of her cream-colored bungalow with children's books scattered on the lawn. She was participating in the rummage sale. And there's some different community groups outside of the Neighborhood Association, I think, that help us know like what opportunities are available and events that are going on um, and things that we can do to come together. I often see surveys about the neighborhood and the near west side and how we can make improvements. So I, I feel that investment constantly going into the neighborhood. Miller Coors has a security car that goes around in the evenings sometimes. And Harley-Davidson helps Martin Drive East with street lighting and other crime prevention. There's also a police department very close by. Miller says there's a stronger sense of community in Martin Drive than anywhere else she's ever lived, including other parts of Milwaukee and Chicago. I just, I feel like here I know so many of my neighbors by name and I feel like if I need to help with something, I feel like I have people I can turn to. Like uh, for a long time I didn't have a lawnmower and I would borrow neighbors' lawnmowers and um, just, you know, people looking out for each other, like, hey, uh, you left your car door open or something, you know, getting groceries out and you forget something. Um, so, yeah, I definitely feel like there's a, a real community feel here. Linda Thomas was at the community-wide rummage sale with her mom. Although she doesn't live in Martin Drive anymore, she once did. I asked her what factors she felt were encouraging diversity here. Like historically, right, and especially when you look at major cities, one of the things that you always hear about is like white flight, right? Anytime you have other groups of people who aren't white moving into a neighborhood, majority of the people leave, right? But I think in this area, you still have a lot of, maybe we call them the OGs, who have lived and grown up in this neighborhood who are still here. And rather than leaving, not only stay, but provide a welcoming environment for those who are coming in. And overall, given that that's the case, are the ones to kind of like organize a sense of community. And so I think um, Martin Drive kind of provides a template to be like, you know, it is okay to, to welcome people into your neighborhoods and to work together to make it better. Lynn Gragis, who is white, is one such OG. OG stands for original gangster, and it's now used as a compliment for one who is original and highly regarded. She's lived in Martin Drive for more than 76 years, inheriting her family's house decades ago. It's a house that was once her grandparents. But once it became hers, acquaintances had something to say. Some of the people I knew uh, said, oh, you should think about uh, getting out of that neighborhood. and. Uh, I kept saying, no, it's a great neighborhood. I, I'm not scared of anything. It's a very comfortable and nice place to live. So I stuck to my thinking and um, I'm still there, yeah. <laughs> but people from all backgrounds have longevity in Martin Drive. I've been in Martin Drive for 28 years. That's Ade Kola, who is black, who you heard from earlier. This is my dad's house, so I've been here almost 30 years. Tang Tao, who is Hmong, was at his house during the community-wide rummage sale with a large group of family members playing cornhole and eating barbecue. This neighborhood is, you know, one that I grew up in and, you know, I've loved my whole life. So 
I've known this neighborhood my whole life. So that's that's it, you know. It's home. It's it is home. It is home, you know. This neighborhood is home. So I mean, I everybody on this. I've seen people come and go on and off this block. My neighbor right here has been here. I think a little bit longer than I have. So. I mean, that's the thing, you know, we've been neighbors like this for over 30 years and he he's much older than I am. So he's watched me grown from a kid to where I am now. And it's great, you know, and sometimes, you know, every time he does his garden, he always wave hi to me. That's 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 the great thing about it. You know, the neighborly love to have that. That's beautiful. We asked Linda Thomas to sum up what it means to live in a neighborhood where people of all backgrounds are engaging with and living next door to each other. Uh, That's a very good question. Um, So I think that irrespective of the city, I think when you have a neighborhood that is diverse, I think it allows for people to truly get to know um, people who might not come from the same background. And I think in the broader scheme, allows for less biases, less hate. She says it's harder for you to hate someone if they look like your neighbor. For Lake Effect, I'm Ayan Silver. Those were residents from Milwaukee's Martin Drive neighborhood on the city's west side, speaking with WUWM's Mayan Silver, along with reporter Eddie Morales and former Vaughn fellow Kobe Brown. Tomorrow, you'll hear from Arijit Sen about how Martin Drive could be a blueprint to create more racial diversity in other Milwaukee neighborhoods. And we want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or conversation that you'd like to hear on the show, give our Community Connection Line a call. The number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lakeeffect. One of Milwaukee's many summer festivals celebrated its 10th anniversary this year. We'll hear from people who were at this year's Puerto Rican Fest next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. In August, Milwaukee's 10th annual Puerto Rican Festival brought live music, dance demonstrations, vendors, and much more to Veterans Park. For Hispanic Heritage Month, WUWM's Eddie Morales and Lake Effect's Sam Woods asked attendees what the celebration means to them and learned how the event brought a taste of the island to Milwaukee's lakefront. First, you'll hear from a festival goer named Vivianette. I'm recently living here in Milwaukee, like almost four months already, and we are here with our kids. So we're here at Puerto Rican Fest. Can you tell me about like all the sights and smells and sounds and all that that's that's coming through right now? Sure. This is like a festival that you're gonna see every month in each um, city in Puerto Rico. The food they have pinchos. That's like Puerto Rican stuff that we eat a lot in festivals, uh, like the piña colada. That's a typical thing from Puerto Rico and a lot of souvenirs that Puerto Rico likes to buy. So yeah, you get, that's the most thing that you will see around here. 
what does Puerto Rican Fest mean to you and, and how does it make you feel to be here um, just kind of soaking in all of this that's going on right now? Well, um, this fest means a lot since I moved here, like I told you before, four years and a half. I never been in Puerto Rico back yet. So this reminds me of all my culture and stuff. Um, and it makes me excited. It made me a little bit of sadness. It's a mix of, uh, of emotions right now. But yeah, we are pretty happy that we are around pretty much everybody's Puerto Rican. So yeah, we feel like we are in the in our island. So it sounds like from what you're talking about, like this this is like a, a taste of home. Uh, it's yeah. not like the whole, you know, it's it's not the whole thing, but it's a it's a just a, a feeling again of like, oh, this this feels familiar. This feels like what it's yeah. like to be home. Is that fair to say? Yes, totally. And more that you're gonna see, like I said, everything a little bit of everything that you're gonna find in your island and the festivals, they got it here. So yeah, it feels so homely and so emotional. Well, first of all, what's your name? Brittany. How many times have you been to Puerto Rican Fest? This is my first, actually. Really? Your yeah. first time here? Okay, and what do you think of it? It's pretty cool. I mean, I'm, I'm born and raised from Hawaii, um, so this is actually pretty cool. I mean, I didn't know Milwaukee had so many festivals. Are you here with anyone that's Puerto Rican? The wife. Oh, nice. <laughs> hello, hello. I'm a reporter. My name's Eddie. What's your name? Emily. Emily, okay. And so you're here with your family today? Yes, I am. Okay, and this is her first time here, Brittany's first time. It is, it um, is. How many times have you been to a Puerto Rican Fest? Uh, about four times. And what do you think of it? Um, I definitely like it here better. It's a lot bigger, you know, not like shoulder to shoulder so much the whole time. Um, and I enjoy it just because it brings me closer to my culture. I was born here in Milwaukee. Last time I went to Puerto Rico, I was about seven. So, you know, this just brings me closer and tied to my culture and who I am. Can, can you describe too, like the sights, the sounds, like what are you experiencing yourself and your family? What, what are you all experiencing today? Um, me and my daughter were dancing salsa. I've never learned how to dance it. So, you know, he was kind of teaching us and that was pretty fun. Um, you know, hearing the music just reminds me of my childhood with my mom, you know, her always playing the music and growing up with that. My name is Taisha Munoz. Well, Taisha, thank you so much for, for joining me. So we're, we're here at um, Puerto Rican Fest. What, what, are you, what are you seeing right now? What are you hearing? What are you smelling? So I'm seeing some bouncy houses. Um, I'm seeing, of course, a lot of people with their Puerto Rican flag gear. I'm hearing a little bit of salsa in the background and a little bit of reggaeton to the left here. Um, as far as smells, I smell um, pinchos, which I believe in English are like shush kebabs. Um, mostly pork and chicken is what they sell. And plantains fried plantains, which are called tostones in Spanish. I smell that. And of course, um, arroz con gandules, which is the rice and beans, or rice and, ch the correct is rice and pigeon peas, which in English it sounds really gross, but I promise it's delicious. <laughs> and yeah, and I see a lot of happy, friendly, family faces. Is this the first time that you've been to Puerto Rican Fest? Uh, no, this is, uh, I would say, about maybe like my 10th year that I can remember. What are you excited about this year? So when you woke up this morning, you're like, all right, it's Puerto Rican Festival Day. Like, let's hop in the car, let's head to the festival. What excites you about being here? What are you looking forward to? I wanted to see uh, some of the live bands, and there was one that I heard. It's really good. He's coming tonight, Christian Alasia. I guess he's a... Uh, 
a really big um, salsa singer and I've never actually heard him perform. So I was really looking forward to hearing that. So you have a uh, front row seat to the main stage. As you look around, what are you, what are you feeling? Uh, I feel good because it's a nice day out. I see a lot of family gathered together. Um, you know, I hear some of my music that I love, salsa. I, I love salsa a lot. Um, and it's nice that it's becoming bigger because I used to live in New York, um, Bronx, New York to be exact, and there, like, Puerto Rican Fest was such a big deal, but obviously there was a larger community of Puerto Rican people, so they kind of had to make it a big deal. Um, whereas, of course, in Milwaukee, um, we're not, I'm sure we don't make that big of a percentage, but it's still nice to know that it's by the lakefront, which lets me know that it's growing because last year, no knock on Jackson Park, I swear, no knock on them, but it was just like a regular small park. And now that, it, that it's at Veterans Park, it's to me like, um, it makes me feel proud because it shows like that we're making a presence, right? Like we're making a bigger presence and like we're being seen um, and heard. So, uh, <laughs> so it was nice that it's in a bigger location because then more people can come and it's nice, it's peaceful. So that's always good. No drama. So that's good. <laughs> um, if you could just start with your name. Jim Soto. So we're here at Puerto Rican Fest. Can you just tell me like what you've experienced so far? Just the sights, the sounds, the food, if you've had any? It's The food is great. The music is great. The atmosphere is beautiful. Beautiful day to be here. How many times have you been? I, every Puerto Rican Fest since it started. Um, and so how is it different over the years? Like, you know, we're at Veterans Park today. How is it different over, over that time? I think they, with the organization and stuff, it's a lot better. It's getting better and better. The vendors and stuff, and it's it's just great. It's, it's getting better. Um, do you mind sharing which area uh, you live in or neighborhood that you live in? I live in Waukesha, Wisconsin. What is it that you think like community leaders could do, whether it's where you live or in Milwaukee, just in general, to like help kind of foster this community feel? I mean, these public events with every every Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, Cubans, whatever, I mean, this is just awesome. This is what every community should do. This is, it's great. It's like being in Puerto Rico, and that's where I come from. Is that where you were born? Yes, and when you're around here, it's like it's like being in Puerto Rico. You see all these people, and they're just like, yeah, it's, it's awesome. Andrea Mendez Barutia. I am a community supporter and I run Mibos.com, a local Latino community events calendar. Uh, well, Andrea, so we're, we're here at Puerto Rican Fest and sitting outside the, the, the bouncy houses here in the middle. Seems like everything rings around where, where the kids play, but um, can you describe to me what you're seeing, feeling, hearing, smelling right now? Yeah, I think um, this is a great place for families to come and visit and enjoy the Puerto Rican culture. Um, I'm seeing lots of, yeah, families. I'm seeing a lot of entertainment, community resources, amazing food and drinks. And um, I know there's going to be some live entertainment coming up soon. Yeah. yeah. Um, have you been to Puerto Rican Fest before? I have. I try to come every year uh, when I'm in town. and. Um, for me, it's important to support our Latino community and the events that are happening. And it, it feels, and I know it's grown bigger and bigger each year. Um, and actually, this is, I think, the first time at Veterans Park in a while, yeah. um, which is amazing that they outgrew their last location, um, locations. 
And yeah, I think it's just really important to support the Latino community and to see um, all the diverse cultures that are here and present in Milwaukee. Yeah. So you've been at uh, Puerto Rican Fest, you've seen it kind of grow throughout the years. What is something you look forward to at Puerto Rican Fest uh, every year, even as it's, as it's changed and grown and morphed? I think for me, the most important part is just seeing people that are here, um, like, you know, to be able to see your um, culture and, you know, parts of your homeland here in one space um, is a beautiful thing. So for me, it's about the people and I'm not going to lie, I love food very much. Uh, so that's one of the first things we did was get our drinks and food. Um, and then of course the music is awesome and I always want to dance. Um, but yeah, I love just seeing the people and like I said, community being represented. Uh, my name is Antonio Martel and I live in Waukesha. So what brings you out uh, today specifically for Puerto Rican Fest? How many times have you been to the fest? Uh, here in Milwaukee is the first time I've been here, but uh, I'm from New York and I go to the Puerto Rican Day Parade in New York City and it's just a great festival to share your culture with other people around you and rock the Puerto Rican flag and just be around Puerto Ricans and people who appreciate the Latino culture and uh, you know buy some good Puerto Rican flag merchandise. Yeah and what, how does this compare I mean New York right like that's got to be such a scene for that kind of parade. Well New York City and the Puerto Ricans, New York Ricans are a unique, a unique people because they're really close to the island in culture. But um, when you got like a million Puerto Ricans, going, Puerto Ricans going down Fifth Avenue, it's like nothing you've seen before. It's a really good time. But I feel like this right here is also, it's a little bit more, uh, it's smaller, but I feel the, the pride and, and I feel the, the fun that's going to happen here with the music coming up and, and the people. Is there anything you're looking forward to specifically today or just in general just being here? Uh, maybe doing a little dancing with my lady and uh, just uh, having a good time. What can local leaders do, local leaders and officials do, whether it's Milwaukee or Waukesha, to kind of help promote more of these events, whether it's uh, you know Hispanic events or if it's uh, just community-based events? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think they should get with the uh, leaders of uh, the individual cultures and uh, talk to them and you know try to organize festivals like this because it helps uh, get people familiar with the culture that might be a little different from them. And with that familiarization, perhaps maybe there'll be less uh, animosity towards each other. WUWM's Eddie Morales and Sam Woods speaking with festival goers at Milwaukee's 10th annual Puerto Rican Fest. Look for more coverage on the rich cultural diversity of Milwaukee's Hispanic and Latinx people on WUWM over the next few weeks. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll have the fourth episode of our new music series, Live at Lake Effect, featuring the psychedelic rock band Night Moves. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect, on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Milwaukee's NPR.